Fire. Hey, we're back. Another one. Girth Radio, Creative Imbalance Podcast, live at the Pacific Junction Hotel. Yeah, what up, guys? What up? Thank you for tuning in. This week is a really good episode. I know a lot of people who listen to this show, like, know a bit of my history with, like, media, doing all these interviews, and I've been doing this, like, I've been interviewing people, like, when I think about it for, like, the last six years, like, through my video work and this podcast kind of naturally spawned from that. And um, this interview that you're about to hear right now is probably one of the most rawest, realist interviews I have done in my life, and that's all thanks to my guest, Blake Horsley. Blake is an author and artist I met a year ago I met Blake about a year ago doing an open mic, doing stand-up comedy at uh, this place called the Norman Felix Gallery. And also the open mic was very interesting because it wasn't just strictly for comedy. It was also for music and spoken word and just like whatever. It was was a really cool vibe. And uh, my introduction to Blake was uh, him reading a passage from his book. Uh, called A Man With Glasses, and at that time, it was unpublished. It was just his big idea. He wrote this whole book, and now he's on the show, and the book is actually published, which is amazing, but uh, but yeah, just, uh, just that introduction kind of shook me up a bit, and uh, I asked him a few more questions about his book, and uh, that night, we went into a big conversation, and he told me the whole philosophy behind it, and also the whole story behind it, which is just fucking riveting. I hope I'm using the word riveting right. I, it's a word like I don't usually use, and I don't know why I just said that right now. But I'm gonna probably like dictionary it. Like like I I just keep it real with it, you guys. I'm not gonna cut that out. I'm gonna leave it here. I'm gonna dictionary that word like right after I press stop, and like I hope I used it in the right context. But his story is absolutely amazing puts you in a very unique perspective and also teaches you about uh having a having a bipolar condition or mania and basically he kind of walks you through like maybe the the nightmare that could happen and his story it kind of like flows through and and has a very happy positive ending and even my intro can't even do its justice but you're gonna hear him walk through this experience he had and also he mentioned uh he really wanted to do the show because he has done a a couple interviews and and one was for his big one was for cbc but the style of the interview was just very serious he's got an intense story but a lot of it he personally finds funny (laughs) with just uh his experience in a mental hospital too and uh even i felt bad like going through his story as in like, cause I was thinking of you guys as a viewer, like just to hear the whole thing. And, uh, we didn't get into a lot of these funny things that he wanted to share, but I'm definitely going to have him back on for a part two on this episode. He basically tells the story of how the book started, but also this episode starts with him reading the very last passage of this book. And, uh, I requested him to do that cause, uh, that's what I saw him do at the open mic and I wanted you guys to get that very exact same introductions and uh yeah I'm excited to listen to this back as uh it gave me the chills 
And yeah, I'm going to stop talking, get right into this. Blake Horsley, a man with glasses, let's fucking go. From Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio in session. Okay. The universe begins and ends inside of you. When you were born, the universe is only as big as the room in which your eyes are first open. As your years pass, the universe can reach as infinite as your mind will allow. And that can be terrifying. For now, more than ever, you realize how finite you actually are. If you wish not to live anymore, you have the ability to destroy all that you have ever seen and all that you've ever come to know. You have the ability to make the infinite disappear into nothing, not even thin air. For when your eyes are shut, the light to understanding the universe is as well. You have created yourself, just as the universe has created itself, and you have come to understand both in the beauty and darkness revealed day and night. To be good, To do what is right is to never destroy what you create. Alone or with God, in heaven or in your own home, you write the story of your existence. You walk in heaven, on earth, or in hell in a manner and direction of your own choosing if you are free enough to do so. If your candle fades, stay awake long enough and the wind will give it all the more reason to burn even stronger. Presence only is true if your light shines for you to see it. Behind closed curtains, inside your mind alone, or on a seat the size of the earth with your eyes wide open. Here, warmed by the sun, blanketed by the sky, watched by the moon and touched by the stars, you are alive. And presently, you have so much potential to find peace. Even if we are only here a fraction of time, a piece on a never-ending, never-beginning clock, or go somewhere eternal after our cherry blossoms fade, we can live happy and strong now in a heaven we call home today. Everyone's mind has the potential to find his or her own version of peace, and it is my belief that this peace is our very life's purpose. Happiness feels like heaven, and its memory is reason for hope when life makes it hard to breathe and days seem impossible to face. How did I not kill myself? I reminded myself of the heaven I once found on earth and the happiness I once shared with so many others throughout my incredible life. My universe does not begin nor end, does not have a creator or a destroyer, but it has love in a life that has created itself. That more than anything gives me a heartbeat. And when I am happy, even if no one is around to share it with, I never feel alone, and I always feel at home. I thank God for this, and feel him right beside me as the birds chirp all around before the sun warms my morning. Thank you, Mom, for bringing me into this heaven. Thank you, Dad, for teaching me how to be a man in this life and the importance of questioning the unknown and purpose of it all. Without my life, Mom, I would never be able to love. 
And without you, Dad, I would never understand the importance of loving the most important thing, life itself. I love life, and I now cherish the tattoos my mom and dad wrote upon my wrists. My mind has suffered. I have suffered. But through it all now, I can look at my wrists, love my tattoos, and thank God and the universe that I have come to understand for the parents that brought me into the room where it all first began. Even though my mother is gone, her writing of love will always be a part of me. And every time I look at that word, I feel her alive, just as she was to me yesterday. In the mornings, I now always remind myself to pause, take a deep breath, and open my blinds so that I can remember just how big a part of heaven I am so lucky to see every day. I remind myself to love life and the air it allows me to breathe in and out as I look towards the day I sometimes forget. I can face in any manner I choose. Hopefully, I'll stay stable enough with a mind that is under control so that my own voice doesn't drown out the real sounds life has to offer. I think the way things are going, I'll be just fine. As Biggie once said, the sky's the limit. It's funny because a song titled Beyond the Gray Sky and a friend who played me that song inspired this book. Wow, dude. Goosebumps. <laughs> and uh, yeah, just to make a note, uh, I met you one year ago at uh, Open Mic, and it was a very mixture of Open Mic. We had uh, a guest from the show, Joe Cash. He was playing acoustic music. I was there to do comedy, and there was also spoken word. And that's how I met you, or... You read that exact passage, which is the end of your book. Yep. It was the first time I ever heard, heard you speak, and I was like, holy shit, that was powerful. And then after when I talked to you, it's just, wow. Like, I, ever since that moment, I felt like I needed to do, like, an interview with you or something. And th that was, like, before the podcast and everything. But, uh, dude, like, I almost don't even know where to begin. You got, like, such an incredible journey like documented in a book and uh, well the thing is like i got this incredible mindset of how like this outlook on life like i look at life as like you gotta love it you gotta cherish it but the reason i have this outlook is because for so long i didn't love life yes i hated life and to be honest i didn't want to be alive and i wanted to give up and Throughout my book, which I document about 10 years of being bipolar, I focus on about a two-year period where I focus on the fact that I'm a drug addict and I was doing a lot of cocaine. And at the end of the night, when I was all by myself, I wanted to kill myself. Mm -hmm. But this book that I wrote, that I just read you the ending to, it was basically my conversation with myself. It was my way of talking about why I don't like life, why I should give up, why life isn't worth living, and then reminding, me, reminding myself of the complete opposite. So like as I went through the book and I continued to write about suicide and write about addiction and write about regret, and write about what it's like to truly be bipolar and suffer the symptoms of depression, I would always write reasons why I wanted to live. And ultimately, those reasons that I wrote in my book kept me alive during my darkest moments and during wow. my darkest hour and my darkest mm -hmm. days. And it was that conversation that led to this last page where my outlook on life 
is completely different than it was when I was 21, 24, 26. You know, I'm now 30, and I have this completely different perspective on life. You know, and to be honest, life isn't always amazing still. Sometimes life is hard. Mm -hmm. I still battle suicidal thoughts. I still battle the fact that I'm bipolar. I still have to accept that I'll always have this illness and I'll always carry this label. But because I've overcome it throughout writing this book, I know that if I go through the same challenges again, I can overcome them again. Definitely. That's, uh, that's awesome. It just almost shows like the power of like, also like with the book too, there's like so much creativity with you doing art. And I remember you explaining to the, this to me like a year ago, like at the beginning of the book, it's like kind of, it wasn't intended to be a book. It was like your journal, right? Yeah. And, um, it starts off in a dark place. And as it goes on, it starts, uh, turning into like a lighter situation of, uh, curing yourself. And, and, uh, I think I remember you saying, like, sorry, it's been a while since I, <laughs> I had a conversation okay. with you, but I remember you saying also, uh, like, in the book, you also have pictures of what you used to uh, you used to create. draw and create and everything, and they start off darker, and by the end, it the grows lighter. into, like, this beautiful thing. You have a good memory. You have a good yeah, memory. Yeah, yeah. Like, dude, like... Our... The, the way the book started, it was 2006... And I got home from school. It was my first year of college, my first week. And it was, you know, my first day of psychology class. And I basically, uh, you know, I smoked a lot of weed that day. And I Mm -hmm. started to kind of lose my mind. And I started writing. And I started writing for the purpose of school. I started writing for the purpose of an an assignment that was given to me in psychology class. But slowly the, the writing started to, to make sense of the insanity that I was going through. And what I was going through was actually like a state of mania. And I basically, I started on a Friday night, started writing, and then I was up Saturday. And then by about Sunday, I wasn't just writing on paper. I was writing all over the walls. I, I went completely manic. And it was during that time period that I thought, hey, you know, like, let's capture bipolar. Let's... Let's write mania. Let's write depression. Let's write everything that someone that who's bipolar goes through and let's document it and let's put it into a book. So I had this idea that I would, you know, collect the writings that I had accumulated for that weekend and however long it would take me to keep writing. And rather than uh, type it all, I would scan it. Yeah. So the reason I wanted to scan it was basically... Uh, to reveal the mind of someone who's bipolar, like unedited. I wanted yeah. to reveal. So you it. see every hand mark, and you can even see in the penmanship my state of mind. So like when I'm manic, it's all scribbly, it's all over the place. When I'm depressed, it's almost like I'm carving into the pages. I'm, you know, uh, you know, I would even put cigarettes out in the page. I would tear the pages and and I would I would tape them back together. When I was happy, the writing was very neat and orderly and stuff. And so I had this idea, and I never lost the intention of writing a book. Even though after that weekend, I was, you know, uh, I was basically forced to be in a psychiatric ward and come down from my state of mania and come back down to a rational state of mind. But even when I came back down to that rational state of mind, which has to do with the medication that I take, they, they, they medicated me so that yeah. I would come back down to earth, I never lost the intention of writing a book. 
And for about 10 years, from, the, from well, nine years, I guess, uh, from 21 till about, I was about 29, I kept writing. And I kept writing journals, and I kept writing um, when I would go through stages of depression and when I would go through stages of mania. And I kept documenting it. And basically, I, uh, I knew that I would eventually take what I had and 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 basically put it together and put it into the form of a book and that's what i did and that's cool like uh when i met you a year ago uh, and i mentioned to this earlier when we grabbed a drink at the bar over there um you were planning on have it published and i remember you having it in like a folder and yeah like, but it was it, it was, was like well organized and now i see it right now it's a real book you got like the co- the cover it's a hard cover yeah, everything man. it's uh that's cool. I'm really proud of you for that too. Thank you, man. I'm very. I'm. I never gave up. I went originally. I went the the when I had finished it. I thought, hey, I'm gonna you know seek out a publishing agent and and get it uh, uh, traditionally published. But then I ended up going the the self publishing route because I didn't want anyone to tamper with my vision. I knew yeah, what I yeah. wanted to do and I knew how I wanted it to be. So I went the self publishing route and I don't regret that at all. It just means more that I'll have to figure out a way to kind of like promote it myself and figure out a way to get get the message out there, you know. Like it's when you go through the traditionally publishing route, you know, they'll they'll put it on bookshelves, they'll put it in chapters, but because I am in charge of my publishing, it's I got to figure out a way to promote it, you know? Yeah, definitely. And the way I want to do it is just by getting my message out there by social media, by my website, by my, my Twitter, you know, and, and public speaking, you know, like I want to go to high schools. I want to go to colleges. I want to go to places of work. I just want to speak about mental illness, you know, like I, I advocate mental illness just by being honest, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's just such a unique story. And, uh, you said I have a good memory earlier, which is not the case, but I think our conversation just kind of shook me up a bit. And like your story needs to be told almost because it I feel like it could get people like in a similar situation or even not just people just going through shit through like sometimes, which it's definitely something that anyone who suffers from any kind of mental illness can find a way to relate and ultimately, you know, to not be ashamed of your mental illness and to seek help is like you, you don't want to feel alone. Mm-hmm. Like if you if you have a mental illness and you feel like the weight of the world is all on you and you're the only one carrying this illness, it's going to make <laughs> you ashamed. And what I did with my book is I want to show people that this is what I went through. This is what I overcame. But ultimately, this is what relates to what you can, you're going through and what, you're, what you've been through and what, what you can overcome too, you know? Yeah. Ultimately, this book is about hope. It's about seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. The tunnel might go on forever. It might be very dark. The walls might be caving in on you. But there's always that, that sense of light at the end of the tunnel. And I want to give people who read this that same sense of light. But I also want people who don't have mental illness to be able to relate to it in their own way because everyone in life goes through different stages and levels of suffering. Everyone suffers however they do. They don't just need to have a mental illness, but you go through hard times. But there's always got to be that hope that things will get better and that you'll reach a state of happiness, even though happiness is always a fleeting emotion. It never lasts forever. 
but you can always attain it. You can always reach it. And that's what I want to show people that even if you don't have a mental illness, you can work towards making your life better and making your life happier. And it's all about overcoming suffering. And yeah, in my case, that's a beautiful thing. And it's, uh, it's very brave of you to like, uh, to put yourself out there as well like that. But I know you have like a whole mission with this, which is awesome, man. Like, cause I know, uh, a lot of people who like go through like tough shit, whether it's like just mentally or anything. And, uh, they almost get into a point where they feel ashamed of it and they don't want to talk about it. Yeah. And, uh, that's the problem with mental illness is, uh, there's still such a stigma prevalent and what that does is it creates an ignorance and a prejudice for people who don't suffer mental illness and they look at people with mental illness as almost like a weakness yeah. and they forget that it's a sickness and it's because of this stigma that people become very ashamed and if you're ashamed to the point where you don't even want to open up to your friends or mm -hmm. open up to your family about the fact that hey I might have depression or, hey, I might be having delusions. How are you going to open up to someone that can help you, like a doctor, like a psychiatrist? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I want people <laughs> to realize that they don't have to be ashamed. They don't have to feel alone. And the agenda that I took to put my story out there is basically something that I decided to do from a very young age. When I was 17, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And I was so ashamed that I couldn't even tell my friends. Oh, wow. Where have you been? Like, where, where? Why haven't you been at school? I couldn't tell them that yeah. I was in the hospital with depression. And, and growing up, did you did you feel that way? Like uh, at an earlier stage? Or it was, was mostly it... when I was younger. Okay. When I was younger, I was very ashamed of my illness. I couldn't open up to certain people, but I was obsessed with stigma. I I studied stigma while I was in the psychiatric ward. And I learned all about it. And I was trying to figure out, like, how do you fight stigma? How do you possibly um, change people's perspective and open people's minds? Mm -hmm. But, like, what I, the conclusion I came to is basically stigma comes from ignorance. It comes from not understanding. It's fear of the unknown. So the only way to fight it is to educate. And the only way that I can fight it specifically is by educating my story and by being open and honest. So I advocate mental illness by being honest. And it's kind of become like a quest of mine. Like it's it's been something that's like driven me to do what I do. It's driven me to write the book. It's driven me to make beautiful artwork and show what a mentally ill mind can create even when it's in a dark place. And it's driven me to make an amazing website, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's dope yeah. as fuck, that website. <laughs> like yeah. It's got all your paintings and stuff. It's, it's, it's nuts. Like, I'm very blessed in the fact that I took the right <laughs> programs in school and college, and I learned how to, to make my own website and stuff. Yeah. And I'm in control of everything, you know? Like, I don't hire, like, a web designer or nothing. Like, I just do it by myself. Yeah, yeah. It's because I love it, you know? Like, graphic design is, like, my passion. Like, the reason I got into art was because I was into graphic design. The reason that I do my art on the computer is because I do graphic design. The reason that I can make my own website is because I learned graphic design. And it's helping me in my quest to fight Sigma. It's my way of doing it. Yeah, it's almost and like an extra um, an extra weapon to connect people. With. Yeah, like, like, you got the book, you got the, the website, and also, like... Uh, same gallery where I heard you speak, they had all your, your paintings up and yeah. stuff, which is incredible, man. I'm like, just trying to get out there in as many ways and avenues as possible mm -hmm. and it's it all started with you know 
a, a website and eventually the, the book would be on the website and be able to be sold and it, it's just one step at a time and I slowly started picking things that I wanted to gain exposure with and like I even pursued the whole Facebook route I developed a Facebook page that's d dedicated to my website I do the Twitter thing I'm still figuring out Twitter Twitter yeah, yeah. Twitter's <laughs> kind of like I like to write a book, so when oh, I have limit so, when I have so many words to write, I'm like, shit, I can't fit it all in, you know? It's like, like, why are you restricting me? Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, do not. Uh, do you mind if we just kind of like go back in time for a bit and like uh, go back to like when you were 17 and this all started? Yeah, well, I kind of want to go through, if you don't mind, no, like, the, the journey that led to that last page that we read at the beginning when i was 17 i was on the wrestling team uh i was one of the leaders i wouldn't say i was the team captain like, you, there know, was the, you know brock lesnar <laughs> yeah i knew of them but yeah no i i was a team leader i would lead practices and warm-ups and stuff i had also you know during the summer worked two jobs and then during the fall i ended up focusing on one job so i was working a job and I was doing uh, wrestling, which is about five to seven practices a week within a five day period. And I was also focusing on my marks. I was focusing on school. I was focusing on getting good grades. I was mm -hmm. focusing on hopefully getting into university because ultimately that's what I wanted to do. That's where yeah. I saw my future going. That's where I saw myself. Like when I was. When I was 17, I pictured myself at the age of 21, like graduating from a university, getting oh, that's, a, getting that's a cool. degree. Like, so you had like a lot of positive goals. Yeah, I had you. a lot of positive goals. But at the same time, my dad had been going through a lot of problems financially. He'd been downsized from different companies. He had lost work. My mom had always been unstable since the age of seven for myself. Uh, she was bipolar as well. And she was never stable, so... I had a mother who was sick that I kind of took care of and I had a dad who was out of work and I also had a job and I had a wrestling team and I had school to focus on and I started basically becoming overwhelmed with pressure. It was almost like the walls were kind of like caving in on me mm -hmm. and it was just caving in and caving in and caving in and then suddenly I just started getting delusional. I started... Imagine. So do you think like the stress triggered it? Because oh I, yeah, I I heard like uh, like a bunch of studies like intense stress like can actually like change you and like. I think for me, they they don't know the number one reason that someone be, gets a mental illness, mm -hmm. but they say the the most common factor is genetics. So I had the fact that my mom was bipolar. So that genetically, like that meant that I might become bipolar. Plus, I had the stresses and the triggers of the financial burden and, and working so much and doing school. So all of these factors basically caused me to have a trigger. And this trigger might have induced something that was that came from a state of genetics from my mom. And when I was 17, I, uh, I slowly became bipolar. And it all started with delusions. I was having delusions in class. I was having delusions when I was watching the TV. I was having all these weird weird things that I didn't know weren't real, but I found out later they they were. Almost, so almost like just like a hallucination. Basically what happening. I was going like a... through was psychosis. That's what they diagnosed okay. it as. And uh, it was so bad that when I would be watching television, I would actually think that the television was watching me. 
I felt like there was cameras in my room and I, and I, I was being watched. Oh, wow. uh, when I would walk down the halls in my high school, I would be thinking that people were looking at me differently. People were laughing at me. People were judging me. People were hating me. Um, when I would, uh, you know, I would go on a wrestling team and I would, you know, I would be um, doing my thing. I'd be wrestling. I'd be, I'd be practicing the sport that I loved. All of a sudden, like, everyone would come around me and I would think that they were doing it because they were judging me. Yeah, but they really, they're like supporting. They were they were supporting me. They were congratulating me. But the way I looked at it was like everyone's everyone hates me, and I remember I started doing irrational things. I started saying weird things to teachers. I would go to a teacher and break down and just start crying. I would go to my wrestling coach and start crying. I would do an assignment and then I would write something that had nothing to do with the assignment. And my dad noticed something was seriously wrong with me. He could just see it because mm-hmm. he had seen it with my own mother when, you know, from the time I was seven till that point. So he knew something was wrong with me. And he took me aside one night and he uh, he listed off a bunch of symptoms of people who suffer from depression. And I had every single symptom. Oh, wow. I'm talking yeah. like social anxiety. I'm talking about suicidal thoughts. Uh, you uh, don't want to hang out with your friends. Uh, feel weird in in certain situations. I can't remember what the list of symptoms was, but I had every single symptom. So my dad took me out of school, and he took me to the doctor, and he took me to the family doctor. And my family doctor could only understand it to a certain extent because the only people that really, truly can diagnose you with a mental illness is a psychiatrist. So my, my family doctor could only diagnose me to a certain extent. And he realized that I had all the symptoms of depression, but he diagnosed me with depression, which was an incorrect diagnosis. Okay. So he ended up recommending that I go see a psychiatrist. And when I went to see the psychiatrist, it had been a couple days since my family doctor had diagnosed me with depression. I had been taking antidepressants that he prescribed to me. And I was feeling better immediately. Like I was back to my old self. Like I was sharper. I was, I was just, I was just like on fire. Yeah. That's the best way to describe it. You know, I was just sharp. Yeah. And, and the, it, was the TV stopped watching you? Yeah. The TV, had, the TV wasn't <laughs> watching me anymore. Yeah. Like all of a sudden it was back to reality. It was oh, back wow. to a normal state <laughs> of mind. But my psychiatrist that I saw at the time, he, he looked at me and he said, you're responding far too quickly to this antidepressant because it's a gradual change when you go on medication. He says because you're responding so quickly, it's very likely that you um, you might be bipolar like your mother because what can happen if you're on an antidepressant, which is what I was on, is that can induce a state of mania. So what that does is it brings you to the opposite spectrum. So you think about depression. It's like imagine there's like a line. And that's your mood. And you, okay. go, you go above it and you go below it. Happy, sad, happy, sad, happy, mad, happy, happy, sad. But imagine depression is falling way below it. Like really like almost like nosediving. Like, yeah, but man- line, mania is a, is a climb that happens very quickly and it's like going way above it. Okay. And the thing about mania is it's very dangerous because the thing about mania is it makes you do irrational things. You might feel like the most confident, amazing, incredible person in the world, but because your mind is in a manic state, you might do fucked up things. You might try to flip a car. (laughs) Yeah, you might try to flip a car. You might try to jump off a building and see if you can fly. You might 
spend you might go to a, a, a shoe store i'm gonna buy 50 pairs of shoes with what just because fuck it just, I'm a man. yeah just like, because i'm manic a lot of yeah. people who are manic they go through gambling problems yeah. a lot of people who are manic they, they have spiritual encounters and they think that they're jesus that's actually something that happened to me like i when i went manic years later i i thought i was jesus oh, I, we'll, we'll definitely i want to hear that story <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, yeah. But, but we'll get to that man. but um <laughs> so that's what happened the, the psychiatrist said he's like you're responding too quickly to this medication. We got to, you know, we got to do something. We got to change your medication so that it's more conducive to someone who's bipolar. But he said, we're going to recommend that you stay in the psychiatric ward. And we're going to recommend that we, we keep you there so that we can monitor you and see how you, you actually react to the medication that we put you on. So that's what I did. I ended up... Uh, I ended up going on medication for bipolar disorder. I ended up staying in the psychiatric ward. I was 17. And I ended up experiencing a very traumatic uh, experience. And it was not a fun place to be. Like, I know that a psychiatric ward is a safe place. Mm -hmm. I know that it's a place that they want to get you better. They want to see what works for you. They want to help you. They want to ultimately, they want to keep you and others safe. Yeah. But at the same time, it's not a place that you want to be. And it almost goes back to that stigma, you, you think, like uh, where people like look at it a certain way, or did? Yeah, there's that shame yeah. factor. Like, yeah. like when I when I got out of the psyche, psychiatric ward, people at school, where you been? Where you been, Blake? I haven't seen you in a month. Couldn't tell. Them. Yeah, I couldn't. I. Well, do you want to admit to your friends that you've been mm-hmm. in a psychiatric ward? It's like you ever seen the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Yeah, yeah. Like, that's what your vision of, like, a psychiatric ward mm-hmm. is like. You watch this movie and you think that it's all fucking crazy people, you know? Like, even someone who's diagnosed with a mental illness, even they'll carry a stigma. Like, they'll look at someone who's schizophrenic and they'll be like, yo, that guy's fucking crazy. Yeah, because it's, know? and it might be the media too, because like you watch like fucking American Horror Story season two and you think, oh, mental hospital. Yeah, it's just like a bunch of yeah. like crazy people running around like trying to kill cra- each other. And, like, you think very, very bad things. And at the same time, usually someone stay in a psychiatric ward isn't pleasant like they don't enjoy it there's nothing that you would enjoy about it it's mm-hmm. a place where you go to get better yeah but while you're in there you're not better how so, was how was that like first day just stepping in there for the first time how did that it feel was it was it's like going to school you know like your first day of school yeah meet new people yeah and... it was okay at first but then your parents leave you and then the doors shut and you're locked inside and you're like, it becomes reality. It's like, it's like all of a sudden, like you realize, like man, like this is fucked up, and like, I'm in this for the long haul. I'm in this to like a better. This is it. it I don't want to say bad things about psychiatric wards, mm-hmm. but sometimes when you're in it, it can feel like you're in a prison. Yeah, and, and I, I'm thinking like, I don't know, like I've never, I haven't had like an experience like yourself, but I'm thinking if they. I had like a similar situation where they sent me here, locked the door, all my friends, family are gone. That would make me feel a little crazier than I did before I even stepped in. Well, when I first went to the psychiatric ward, I looked at it in a very negative mindset. And I thought that the way that they did things was wrong. I thought that the way that they treated their patients was wrong. I thought that... The fact that it was more like a prison and less like a place to get help was wrong. I, I didn't like the fact that you would walk down the hall and the walls would be bare. 
and there'd be no art, there'd be nothing beautiful, there'd be nothing inspiring. It would just feel like this cold place. Mm-hmm. So I had this outlook that psychiatric wards were fucked and they were not a good place to go to and they weren't a good place to get help. But as the years passed, you know, throughout my 20s, I had more and more breakdowns. I had a lot of manic episodes. I had a lot of incidents where I needed to go back to the psychiatric ward. And every time I went back to the psychiatric ward, I always got better. I always got healthier. I always got stronger. I always healed. So all of a sudden, throughout my 20s, going to the psychiatric ward more and more, I think I ended up going about seven times in total, um, my outlook changed. And I looked at it as a place that it may not be where you want to be, but it's a place that's going to help you. And I didn't have that outlook when I was 17. When I was in the psych ward, it was a place I detested. I hated Mm -hmm. this place. It was a prison. I didn't want to go. But as I got older and I needed to go, I kind of realized it's not perfect, but it's definitely, it definitely helps you. And I, I, and I understand why they do certain things. Yeah. Yeah. Like why don't they have paintings on the wall to inspire you? Well, because that might take someone else's mind and put it in a weird place. Yeah, it could work for some people. It could work for some other people. Yeah, they want to keep it plain. They want to keep it simple. They want to keep it, you know, and they also want to, like, if you can, if you can be in a psychiatric ward and be fine, Mm -hmm. buddy, you can walk out on the street and be fine. Like, because, like, if you can handle being in a psych ward and, you know, taking your medication, you can handle that, that, that kind of place, you can handle the real world. You know, yeah. they, they gauge, they look at you and they say, this guy is walking down the hall. He is upbeat. He's happy, but he's locked inside of prison, but he's doing well. If you can do well in that place, I'm telling you, you can do well anywhere. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that's how I look at it. You know, my, my perspective on psychiatric wards has definitely changed a lot. It wasn't always a uh, good a good perspective but it's definitely changed a lot you know so but that's how it started yeah. i was you know i spent about a month and a half in there when i was 17 i came out didn't tell that many people where i'd been and within a couple of weeks i was back to being on the wrestling team i was yeah, back, back at school like, i was back yeah. just doing my shit you know yeah. and i was taking my meds and you know everything was fine but eventually i went to my doctor i said you know i don't want to take meds anymore i don't i don't need that shit you yeah know? you got kind of confident maybe yeah you, like, you I'm feel fine, like i'm fine like, it, I'm, I'm doing good why do i need meds like everything's fine so i went off my meds i ended up going to prom I ended up drinking and i'm doing all that fun stuff that people in high school do mm-hmm. and then a couple of years went by and i still was off my meds and things were still going it's great still feeling good feeling still good. yeah and then when i was 21 like i told you earlier that's when the whole manic episode happened and that's where it triggered writing the book and I totally blame it on the fact that I wasn't on medication. Oh, you know, wow. I, I have such a severe mental illness that I've come to accept that I'll always need medication. So did you just, did that situation just come out of nowhere or was it like a gradual climb? It was felt uh, like the tension building towards it. It was kind of a, it was a combination of things. It was the fact that when I was about 20, uh, when I was about 19, I started dabbling in hard drugs. Here and there, I would do cocaine. Yeah. I would do ecstasy. I would do yeah. things like that. So that, that stuff, like, all, well, not the cocaine, but the ecstasy, kind of like alters your state a bit. Like, yeah, it affects your tone and stuff. Yeah. So I would dabble in that here and there. But from about <laughs> 19 to 
21, I started self-medicating with marijuana. Started smoking a ton of weed. I started, you know, smoking bongs. I smoked pipes. I smoked blunts. I smoked joints. I would just keep smoking weed. I would do it on a daily basis. I would go to work and I would be stoned. Mm -hmm. And when I was 21 and that whole episode happened where I was manic, um, I had been self-medicating with marijuana for quite some time. And then all of a sudden, I went through this big change where I wasn't working anymore. I was going to college, and it was my first week at college. And change can be a trigger, plus the marijuana that was oh, wow. going on, yeah. and plus the stresses of the fact that, you know, financial stresses going to school, and the the stresses of the fact that I'm, I'm not, you know, working anymore. I'm going to be getting an education. And I, the, 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 it was, what was it? It was 2006. It was uh, September 9th, 2006. You remember the exact day. Yeah. (laughs) September 9th, 2006, I smoked a lot of weed. And that led, that partially led to me losing my mind. And I went very, very manic. And that's how the book started. That's how everything kind of started. Yeah. So after that day, uh, like, uh, I I forget, like, uh, the beginning of your book. Is that when you got checked in again to a hospital or yeah that's basically um that basically sums up that weekend where i basically wrote and wrote and wrote all over the walls and then was this at your house you just started going nuts and writing all over your walls and yeah it was in the basement it was in the basement uh that led to the it was the hallway that led to the bathroom in my basement and I had written uh, on pages for three days, like Friday, Saturday into Sunday. And then all of a sudden on Sunday, I started writing on the ceiling and I started writing in my bedroom. I started writing over oh, the wow. ceiling. And then I went to the bathroom in my, in my basement. I started writing on the walls and I started writing about inspiration. And then I ended up going into the, the hallway that led to the bathroom in my basement. And I ended up writing this weird equation. It would have words and it would have arrows and it was pointing from the bottom right of the wall to the top left of the wall to the bottom left of the wall. It was almost like this this circular, um, like, weird equation I can't even describe. Oh, and, interesting. And it, the, the point of it was that I was trying to prove, and this is kind of embarrassing, but I was with that equation trying to prove the existence of God. Oh, wow. I, I was so manic that I felt that I had this weird connection with God that, like, I could almost, like, hear his voice. Yeah, and that goes back to what you were saying, too, like, where that's a common thing, I guess, with manic people. Yeah, manic people, can, and, they uh, can go through very spiritual experiences. Yeah. So I, you know, wrote on the wall, and I wrote this equation about, you know, God being real, and I ended up... Um, a lot of weird things happened that night. Like, I ended up going upstairs... And I tried to feed vegetables to my brother's dog. My brother's dog was over, and I yeah. was trying to. So this is like uh, I was going to ask. This is this is at your parents' house, right? You're not like in student housing or anything. Like no, this house. is at my parents' okay, house. Okay, too. So like, as you were gradually like writing all over the place, did they say anything to you? Like what? They the were fuck? sleeping at the time. Oh, was, okay. So was, this was like the, over like one I wrote, night. Like, I actually wrote the time of the night when I wrote it. Yeah. It was three o three a.m. It was the witching hour. <laughs> and it was 3.03 a.m. It was September 11th. 
2006, and on the wall I wrote September 11, 2000, whatever. Yeah. And it was weird because uh, <laughs> you know I was writing about I was writing all the stuff on September 11th, and uh, when I first you know got sick when I was 16, 17, it all it all kind of started from when 9/11 happened. Oh, really? It kind sick. of it, it induced a kind of a fear in me that slowly, gradually made me have a breakdown. And a year after September 11th took place. I watched Bowling for Columbine, and that movie kind of, that's where I really started having, like, psychosis. Yeah. So and then, I guess in your mind, that became, like, such a significant date for stuff to trigger? Very much. Very much. I, it's, it, this, this story is so complicated. It's so all over the place. Oh, but yeah, yeah. The, the, the fact is, is, like, being bipolar, my, my, my specific illness, um... I'm very sensitive to things on the news. I'm very sensitive to events like world events. Mm -hmm. And September 11th, I, I would say, definitely was one of the reasons that it induced my fear and induced my uh, my state where I was, like, basically... I, I think I lost my mind to a, a lot of factors, but I think one of the factors was September 11th. You know, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but no, I'm trying I, to... I'm following you. Though. No, it's it's very interesting, too, just to, to hear you so openly talk about this, too, because, like, it goes back to, like, what we were talking about, like, the stigma and stuff. Like, you're so brave to just, like, put this out there and, like, with the book and everything. I, I'm, I'm just so fascinated. And I... The thing is... Um, when I talk about it, it's it's one thing to talk about it and to and to and to tell the story, mm -hmm. but even now, like even after all is said and done, and and I've been through the ups and the downs, and I've been hospitalized and come out of it, and I'm on medication, and I've written a book. Sometimes making sense of it, it's like, how do you make sense of losing your mind? Yeah, you know, like you're trying to pinpoint like. This caused this, and this caused that, and this happened then, and I did this at this point. But, like, really, you're rationalizing and making sense of losing a grip on reality. And, like, and the only way to make sense of it is to, to basically sum up what this reality yeah. was. And this reality, to me, is fucked. It's probably, like, something, like, even though you do a good well or a, a good job, like, c communicating it very well, it's probably something you can't even put into words, like... Yeah, it's like every little moment of for me. Like I, I just I find it it difficult to to figure out the 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 what's the word the triggers. Yeah, like what like this triggered this, this triggered that, this happened on this date, but really like what what it is probably just turns into like a big blur of mess of everything. Yeah, like, but yeah, it's interesting. Like you taking the initiative to like try to break that down is <laughs> no I, yeah. I try my best and um i try my best to make sense of it but to be honest like i just i i don't know man <laughs> like it's 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 to me like even now looking back at like what i've been through it's like i don't know you know yeah. so do you mind if i go for oh, a quick oh yeah it's all good man let's take a break and uh yeah, yeah we'll continue your story oh girth radio a nigga never been as broke as me, I like that When I was young I had two pair leaves Besides that, the pinstripes in the gray uh -huh. The one I wore on Mondays and Wednesdays uh -huh. While niggas flirt, I'm throwing tigers on my shirt And alligators, uh -huh. you wanna see the inside, huh? I see you later, here come the drama Oh, that's that nigga with the fake, uh -huh. wow! 
While you punch me in my face, stay in your place. Play your position, uh, become my intuition. Uh -huh. Go in this nigga pocket, rob him while his friends watch it. The hoes clock it, uh, here comes respect. His crew's your crew, or they might be next. Look at they man eye, big man, they never try. So we roll with them, uh, stole with them. I mean loyalty. Niggas bought me milks at lunch, the milks with chocolate, the cookies, the crunch. Hey, eyes cost some blue and white duck. Ask the blood. Outside with Blake, and you mentioned, uh, or you just had like such a great analogy. I don't even. Do you do you remember the analogy on uh, what you said about uh, mania? Mania, yeah, yeah. Okay, 
So I went through Mania in 2001, uh, where I wrote all over the walls, and I wrote what was the beginning of this book. And Mania, like, I've done a lot of drugs. I've battled uh, constant drug abuse, constant self-medication. I've actually been uh, diagnosed with, as someone who suffers from concurrent illness. So basically that means... Because I have a mental illness, I dive into self-medicating. And self-medicating can be with drugs and with alcohol. And because I dive into that, it induces a stronger state of uh, mental illness. So it's kind of like a, that's where the concurrent illness comes into play. Yeah. So the way I look at mania is, it feel, like I've done mushrooms, I've done coke, I've done uh, MDMA, ecstasy, uh, I've done a lot of things. I don't even want to go into the whole list. It's, it's like gonna, the list is like, oh, what haven't of, I it's done? Kind of, it's kind of, of incriminating, but yeah. um, mania feels like the delusions of mushrooms because, you know, like the psychosis of like losing your mind, losing rationality, losing a grip. Uh, it feels like the delusion of mushrooms. Uh, it feels like the uh, paranoia and the antsiness of marijuana, like the, the keep going. Mm-hmm. Uh, it feels like the rush of uh, cocaine, you know that if you, I don't know if you've ever done coke. I don't want to say that you um, have, but if you don't, you I'll, don't I'll be open to, on the show. I, I, I tried it when I was in high school. Yeah, <laughs> I, I did a lot of it when I was writing yeah, the it book. Didn't become my thing. When I was writing on. the book, I was doing a lot of coke, and yeah. uh, to me, mania feels like the rush of cocaine. And I also had uh, a lot of problems with uh, ecstasy and MDMA, which affects serotonin. And to me, mania also feels like the elation of of that drug. So it feels like the delusions of mushrooms, the paranoia of marijuana, the uh, the rush of cocaine, and the elation of MDMA. So combined, when you combine these factors, it feels pretty fucking good. <laughs> so you you might think that oh mania is a good thing, but the one thing about mania and like that's what I tried to figure out when I was writing this book, is what's the difference between mania and happiness. And what I figured out was happiness is a feeling that you kind of embrace the moment. Like you might be standing on a beach and you might, you know, feel the waves hitting your toes and you're just in that moment. You're just happy. You don't need to you don't need to chase anything. You don't need to run from anything. You don't need to go anywhere. You just are where you are and you're feeling good. Happiness can also be a form of excitement. It can be like something's going to happen that I'm yeah, looking forward to. The to. Show, yeah, to so show. it's like I'm going somewhere, but I'm happy in the moment where I'm at. But mania, it feels like you're always trying to go somewhere else. You're always trying to go here. You're trying to go there. You're trying to do this. You're trying to do that. And because of that, you know, you're up for for days. You're up for for nights. You're you're not sleeping. You can't rest. Like your mind is going a mile a minute. Yeah. But you can't just sit down and enjoy the moment and just let it be because you're always going somewhere else. Yeah. That's what mania is. And that kind of like segues to the story we were telling before we went to the music break where you had another mania like attack and then you started writing on your walls. Yeah. And so we ended off, uh, you got like all the way to your washroom or whatever. And it's the middle of the night. Like, what happened, like, the next day, like, when your parents well, were Well, that night, I ended up um, going upstairs. 
I was thinking some weird things and I was thinking about life and death and I was thinking about the fact that maybe, you know, we're already in heaven and there is no heaven and we can live forever on this beautiful place, this this rock that we call earth. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking about the fact that, you know, like dogs don't live a very long life. And I started thinking about the fact, like, what do dogs eat? Well, they eat a lot of byproducts of meat. So I was thinking that death creates more death so like if you're gonna eat meat you're gonna die and stuff i started thinking all these irrational like if you have salads every day you're immortal type of thing. yeah i was kind of on that path where i was thinking if you eat vegetables and you drink water or holy water or whatever you can live forever so i tried to feed my my brother's dog i tried to feed her feed her vegetables she wouldn't eat it and when I was upstairs and I was in the the rec room or the the, uh, the living room where all this was taking place, the lights were off. And I remember looking outside and I remember looking out at the trees uh, out front of my house and just feeling like the earth was alive, like the earth was wow. breathing. Like, like I almost felt like we were in heaven and like we were a part of this huge existence, which is alive. And we can prolong our own life by just embracing that yeah, life. And you mentioned like part of like your uh, mania analogy that it feels like you're on mushrooms. And yeah. like my experience with mushrooms, it, it feels like the Every, world's breathing. Like the walls well, are yeah, breathing. Yeah. Like everything's coming alive. And I remember I remember seeing that and just thinking, Wow, like I'm in heaven already. Like we're already in heaven. And I remember like it was around um, it was September for some reason, there was a balloon in my uh, living room. I don't know if it was a birthday balloon or what it was. But I remember having this psychosis episode where I actually saw the balloon rise to the ceiling. And I thought that that's, that was God's way of communicating to me that yeah, you're on to something. sign. <laughs> yeah, like it was very strange. And then I remember sitting on my sofa... And I remember looking at the the DVD player or the uh, VCR that was there, and I remember looking at a blue light and a laser beam shot out of the uh, the uh, the player, oh, wow. and it, it it connected to my eyes. So I saw this like this light just just come out, and it was so weird and surreal. And I thought that's way that was God's way of talking to me. So like I was completely out of my mind. That's interesting too. I heard like people who've done. Uh... Are you familiar with like DMT ayahuasca? Like, I've heard of it. Yeah, I would never I just, try yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just um, I heard somebody uh, like break down their experience too, and like you said, it feels like you're like in these alternate like drug states when you have like a mania attack. And they, there was a couple people like mentioned in their experience they've seen a light come, but the. In their experience, they felt like the beam was giving them information. Did you well, feel that I way? Well, I felt that the beam was connecting me to God. Okay. And the, the funny thing about this whole God thing, like writing on the walls and, and, and feeling <clears throat> like this connection with God, before this weekend happened, I had always been looking for a connection with God, but I had never had it. I had never really realized that maybe I do believe in God. Maybe I do believe in something greater than our own existence mm-hmm. that might have created our existence and when i was going through this delusional state of mania i almost felt like god was real and god was coming down and he was communicating something to me and i remember that night i ended up going into my brother's room and i ended up showing him all the writing that i had accumulated over three days and it was a pile of pages that was very thick like about as thick as, as this book that i'm showing you 
And I remember his reaction. I remember he was shaking. He was like, oh, my God, my brother's not doing well. And he, mm -hmm. I remember him shaking. I remember going into my, my dad's room where my, where my mom was. I remember lying in the bed with them. And I remember just feeling so confident because of the mania. But at the same time, I was so frightened because I was onto something so big that, like, I couldn't really bring it back down to reality. It's so fucked. Wow, like, yeah. I, I can't even describe to you how fucked it was. And then the next day, my dad knew something was really wrong with me. He knew that, okay, my son's manic. He's been up for three days. He hasn't slept. He's written on all these pages. And he's written all over the walls. So I have to figure out a way to coax him to go to the psychiatric ward. And I remember him, you know, telling me that we got to get your printer fixed. You know, your printer needs to be fixed. And we're going to take it to the printing place. And we're going to fix it. And we ended up going to a printing place because he didn't want to make his lie look like... Yeah, you know, only he, like a half lie. <laughs> yeah. So we went to the printing place. And I remember thinking weird things. I remember... There was a staircase in the in the, one of the offices, and I climbed the staircase, and I thought that I was climbing this staircase that would bring me to God, and oh, I ended wow. up knocking on in the, the door. In the printing place? Yeah. <laughs> and I remember I knocked on the door, and it was someone sitting at a at a desk, and I remember thinking, oh, is this God? Like, Is this is this who I'm supposed <laughs> just to see? It's like it's a mysterious way of just And then I remember the ended up get, I ended up getting back in the car with my dad after we dropped off the printer. I said, Dad, you got to pull over. And at this point, I had been like laughing hysterically because I remember uh, trucks that were around me. I thought they were there to protect me. I thought that maybe I was Jesus reborn and like all wow. these trucks around me were there to protect me. And I remember that the clouds almost like the way they were touching the sky and almost hitting the ground. There was so many clouds. It was like I, I thought that we were in heaven already. And I remember I told my dad, I said, Dad, you know, like pull over. Um, I need to stop for a second. I need to do something. So he pulled over and he let me out of the car and I ended up going to a tree and I wanted to show that, you know, we can live forever in this heaven if we just embrace what heaven gives us. And I ended mm -hmm. up taking a, a leaf off the tree and I ended up start. I started eating the leaf. Oh, wow. I was, oh. It was a maple leaf and I started eating it like uh, the way that... Uh, an animal would eat vegetation. And I thought this was my way of showing. And does that, that go back to your thought where it's just like that meat thing where it's like, Oh, Absolutely. the vegetation is like yeah. life. It's like, I'm going to be immortal. Vegetation is life. I'm going to be immortal. And, and I remember eating this leaf and my dad's like, all right, you got to get back in the fucking car. And he ended up, you know, coaxing me back in the car. And he took me to the hospital. He took me to Peel Memorial Hospital. This is when that hospital was still around. Now it's Brampton it's, Civic Hospital. Oh, okay, so in Brampton. Yeah, okay. it's in Brampton. And I remember sitting there with him with all these pages that I had written. And I remember looking at him and I remember saying, Dad, like, I don't need to be here. Like, I'm fine. Like, I was completely confident in in what I was thinking and what was going on. I thought I was completely right. Like, yeah. everything that was going on was right. And my dad said, listen, like, if you, you know, if you go, like, you know, the, you're, you're sick, you need help. So I slammed the pages that I had written down, and it was hundreds of them. And I ended up running to the front door of the, uh, the hospital, where the, not where the emergency is, but where the, 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 the front doors yeah, are. Yeah, like the lobby. And area. I ended up uh, ripping off my shirt, ripping off my pants, ripping off my shoes and my socks, and ripping off my underwear. 
and I ended up running straight down oh, the uh, the hospital parking lot, completely naked. <laughs> and while I was running, people like I remember one guy cheered. He's like, "Yeah, let's go streaking, let's go streaking." Oh, like like old school, yeah, like, like, break like, the tank. Yeah, <laughs> it was so weird. And then when I got to the end of the parking lot, completely naked, I thought, "Hey, I've got this message from God. I'm Jesus reincarnated." I got to get people's attention, which I just did. But what's a better way to get people's attention? So I thought, why don't I walk back up to the front doors? So naked, I walked slowly like I was this powerful person. And I walked to the front doors. And as I walked to the front doors, a nurse came up to me. And she was a nurse that I had had in the psychiatric ward when I was 17. Oh, so did she remember you? I don't know if she remembered me, but I remembered her. And she said to me, she said, look, uh, she said, come with me. We're going to take you back in the hospital and we're going to, you know, have you, you know, g- deal with this. And she helped me put my clothes back on and she helped me put my shoes back on. And I walked back into the hospital and I sat down beside my dad and I was sitting there in the waiting room in the emergency. And I said, dad, I don't need to be here. And he said, son, you do need to be here. I said, no, I don't. He said, well, if you run. Don't ever come home. It was kind of like a warning. Like, don't fuck with me. You know, like, I'm here to help you. Like, yeah, yeah. He didn't mean what he said, but he said it in a way that would kind of frighten me. Yeah. So what did I do? I, I ended up running. I ran out the hospital doors. I ran down the parking lot. I ran down the street. And I was completely manic. I hadn't slept for <coughs> three days. Uh, you know, I was out of control. And I ended up going down uh, to these different streets I ended up making my way to Kennedy Road uh, from the hospital. And, you know, while I was there, I would go up to strangers and I would try to enlighten them. You know, I would try to, like, show them that I was this powerful person with this incredible message. And I would try to enlighten them just by saying hello to them and by sparking a conversation. Um, The street, you know, the the street hand, that the the signal that's... the red hand, the, the red hand, hand yeah, yeah that signals not walk. Up, not walk. Yeah. I would walk up to those things and I would give them high fives. I would jump <laughs> up and high five them. Um, I would, uh, I would play in the dirt. I would roll around within the dirt when there would be like a construction site, and I would look at ants and I would say, you know, like we're in heaven, but you know, I'm so envious of the ants because their version of heaven is so much bigger than mine could ever be. Wow. And I was having this, like, spiritual moments with with fucking ants. Like, I was talking to ants and shit. (laughs) Even though you're going full-blown manic, like, I just, like, in the the back of my mind, I'm just like, that's kind of beautiful. Yeah. (laughs) You're talking to these ants. Yeah, I was talking to these ants like they could fucking hear me. Yeah. And then I ended up, you know, I would, all of a sudden, this, this thing happened in my brain where I thought, It's not about eating vegetation. It's not about eating leaves off trees that's going to make you live forever. It was like I started thinking that if you drank water and only water, you would drink holy water. And I thought that if you drank water, it would be a way to live forever. (laughs) I was fucked, man. I'm sorry. This story is so fucking weird. But it's true. This is exactly what happened. And then I would walk into restaurants and I'd be like, and they'd be like, can we serve you? And I'd be like, no, I just want a cup of water. So I would take a cup of water from this restaurant and I would drink it. Then I would walk into another restaurant and I would drink it. Then all of a sudden I walked into an Indian restaurant. Um, it was a Sikh restaurant, I think, because the uh, the pictures on the wall were like uh, Sikhs with turbans and stuff. And I ended up going to the washroom. And I thought that uh, to fully find holy water, you had to completely let go. 
So what I did was I went to a toilet and I bathed my hands in a toilet bowl and I washed my hands in the, in the, the water toilet. of a toilet bowl. And I thought that was my way of finding holy water. And then I continued, you know, down my path, uh, down Kennedy Road. And as I walked further down the path, I ended up running through traffic, feeling completely invincible. And I run, ran up to a fence and I started shaking the fence and cars were like honking at me and stuff. And then I ended up walking further down the road and I ended up um, basically grabbing a rock and lying on the ground and carving a big O in the ground with the rock. And what I was trying to do is I was trying to sh show people to, to open their mind. Oh, you know, okay. Be like me, like let this this heaven into yourself the way I had let it into myself, like yeah. open your mind. And, and at that very moment, you thought the circle would be like a symbol that people see and like yeah. understand what, and I what thought, you're thinking. At I that thought moment. that me drawing an O would, even though it made sense only to me, yeah. I thought it would make sense to anyone who saw it. And then I ended up walking further and further and further. And then I ended up walking down Barley Bull. And then I ended up getting close to my house. And I remember my dad had said, like, if you run, don't ever come home. And I ended up saying, well, I got to go home. You know, like I prayed to God that I would see my dad again. And mm -hmm. this is my way to make my prayer possible. <clears throat> and I ended up hopping the fence uh, into my backyard. And I ended up going through the back door. And then I heard my mom and my dad scream, he's here, he's here, he's back. And the, my mom was like, send them away, Walter. And I was like, what are they talking about? And I said, don't worry, I'll handle it. And I went outside to the front door and I walked out to the front, uh, front patio and I put my hands up in the air and I started um, basically praying to Jesus and I started thanking Jesus over and over. Thank you for giving me this life. Thank you for, for giving me this amazing, uh, this heaven that I'm a part of. Mm -hmm. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Over and over, I started saying it. And as I had my hands up in the air, two police officers walked towards me and they said, oh, thank you very much. You can put your hands down now. And they thought that I was um, surrendering. They thought that I was giving myself in. Oh, okay. And they came up to me and I had taken my shoes off and they actually uh, put my shoes back on my feet and tied my shoelaces together. Oh, like and almost like cuffing your shoes together? Yeah, like well, not cuffing my shoes. They handcuffed me, yeah. but they just tied my shoes. And I thought this was a way of them... Uh, basically showing their respect. Like, I thought they were doing this out of a sign of respect. Like, hey, this guy's Jesus reborn. Let's tie his shoelaces. It's like, uh, I was raised Catholic. That's almost, like, goes back to, like, they, like, uh, like this, there was one story where, or, like, in multiple stories, like, a sign of respect, they had, like, a foot wash. And yeah. they come through the door. Yeah. And uh, they'd, like, that's wash, what like, Jesus' feet. So that's almost, like... When you were going through this, did you like read like a lot of like scripture, or was this just um, something you most were of what I of? knew about religion was just through conversation, yeah. through conversation with my dad, through conversation with teachers, yeah. through conversation with people, through what I saw on television. I never really read a lot of scripture. I never really read the Bible, uh, but from what the the religious experience I was having having during this state of mania. It was a lot of from what I had learned from other experiences. Yeah, and for, and for the record too, I'm I'm not Catholic anymore. But uh, yeah. but it's just like I thought maybe in your mind you connected that to like the Bible of them like it taking care, taking care of your there feet. There's, there's was like some something kind of, like I'm even like butchering the story where like taking care of each other's feet was like a sign of respect for whoever. There and, definitely like, was a type of biblical connection that I was trying to understand and make sense of and yeah. i don't know if i was on the right i don't know if it made a lot of sense because i never really read the bible but 
at the mm-hmm. time, it just seemed like something that yeah, that's very was very biblical. Yeah. And I remember the, the cops ended up handcuffing me, <clears throat> tying my shoes out of a sign of respect, or so I thought, and then uh, placing me in the back of a cop car. And all of a sudden, I went from this very confident, manic person to this person that was basically engrossed in fear. I thought at this moment that I'm this powerful person. I'm Jesus reincarnated and I'm the voice of God. I thought because I was this, they weren't taking me somewhere to help me or to treat me or to to protect me. I thought maybe they were taking me somewhere to crucify me. So as they're driving, I was looking up at the sky and I was praying and I was like hoping that, oh my God, like I hope this doesn't end in in me getting killed. (laughs) It's terrifying. And then I ended up getting taken back to the hospital and I remember thinking... This is it. Like this is where they're gonna they're gonna end my life. Like I'm too important. You know, I have I have this message that we already live in heaven on earth. Yeah. It's just a playground that we all can share. It's the modern day version of bringing you to the Romans. Like yeah. <laughs> and I remember thinking because <coughs> I had this incredible message that we're in heaven already, that I deserve to die. So I ended up getting escorted into the emergency. They walked me through emergency. They had me in handcuffs. They brought me to a room. They asked me to sign this contract that said that I would be uh, looked after. I couldn't even sign it. I was so delusional. I walked all over the piece of paper, and I spoke in tongues. Wow. I don't even know what speaking in tongues is, but I know that. You did it that I day. I did it that day, and I was speaking this weird language that only, like, a, uh, you know what tongue sounds like? It's like it's gibberish. Like, mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense. And then... I asked the officer, can you take me to the washroom? I need to use the bathroom and I need to take a piss. And the the officer took me to a bathroom and I started peeing. And as I was peeing, I actually saw a feather come out of my penis (laughs) and float into the, into the toilet bowl. And then I looked into the toilet bowl and I looked into the water and I kept looking and looking and looking and I couldn't see it. It's like as soon as it hit the water, it evaporated. Like, it disappeared. It's like, I got the cock of an angel. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I, that's, at that moment, I thought that I was a fallen angel. I thought that I was, uh, like, this, this is a fallen angel, and my wings were forever going to be shackled. And then they ended up taking me into a room, and there was people with white <laughs> uniforms, like doctors and nurses. And I thought they were, like, an audience. And then they tied me to a bed. And I started thinking, oh, my God, like, this is it. So I looked at the wall, and there was a hole in the wall. I guess someone had kicked a hole in the wall. And I thought that was, like, uh, basically a place to another existence, to another state of life. So I'm like, okay, maybe there isn't this opportunity to live forever. Maybe there is death in life, and this is just me going on to the next life. I started thinking all these weird things. But I started looking at this hole in the wall as, like, an opening to another gateway. And I started saying, oh, over and over, oh, oh, open your mind, open your mind, see what I see. And then all of a sudden a doctor came up to me and he gave me this, this pill and it was like a little soft candy. And he said, let this dissolve on your tongue and it'll make you feel better. So I put it on my tongue and I started letting it dissolve and I, I, it had this sweet taste to it. It was a form of Zyprexa or Olanzapine is what they call it. Okay. And I started letting it dissolve. And all of a sudden I started thinking this is their way of killing me. They're going to poison me. the ejection pill. (laughs) Yeah. And then I spat it back at the doctor and I I started screaming and I started shaking the bed and the bed started moving all over the place and I was just going crazy. And then they grabbed a needle and then they injected me 
And then I ended up closing my eyes, and then I woke up, and then I was in a psychiatric ward. Yeah. And that was that was it. That was the story of my mania that started the book that I wrote. And, you know, I never lost that drive to keep telling that story. Yeah. You know. That's, that's so interesting. And, like, thank you for telling that story, too, because, like, uh, I don't want to make it seem like I'm, like, trying to exploit your story. Like, you know, it's like I... I know there's a light at the end of the tunnel, which we're going to get to. And it's just like, I thank you for like being so brave on no, it's just no being problem. so open. Like I never had an interview like this in my life. And it, the one thing it, I can it, say though, is like, though what I went through was completely irrational yeah. and to some people completely crazy. That's a, that's a word that stigmas created. Mm-hmm. Um, when you tell a story like what I told, tell you, but you tell it from a controlled state of mind. You tell it from a stable state of mind where in this moment, as I talk to you, I'm okay. I'm coherent. I'm rational. That's when the story can be told and no stigma can be brought into it. Mm-hmm. Because some people might look at that story and say, wow, that guy's fucked. Yeah. I don't want to listen to what that guy's got to say. He's fucking, he thinks he's Jesus. He thinks he's that. He thinks he's God's gift. He thinks that heaven's here. He's crazy. But I don't think that anymore because I went through it and I healed and I look at it as, it's almost like, you know, when you have a, a terrible dream and then you wake up and you remember the dream and you can talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. What's going on now when you're talking about it isn't terrible. But I look back and it was just, it was just that this story is just a terrible dream that I lived while I was awake, you know, and I'm just fortunate that I can talk about it from my perspective now because I don't think like that. Mm-hmm. I don't think in that irrational state of mind. Do I believe in God? I have my own belief in God and what I, what I believe is something that matters to me and it should only matter to me. Yeah. Do I believe I'm the voice of God? No. Not anymore. Do I believe that I'm human? Yes. Do I believe that I live and die like everyone else? Absolutely. But do I believe the things that I believed when I went manic and lost my mind? No. But did those things that I experienced when I went through that mania help shape my beliefs now? Absolutely. Everything that I've taken and learned and come to develop as my own form of, um, of belief, it comes from my experiences in life. And sometimes my experiences in life were considered crazy. Mm-hmm. but they've also been beautiful at the same time. Live from the center of the earth, Girth.
ocean airing sleeper and evolution step towards breaking that stigma in people's mind like yeah like oh man <laughs> well, like, that's that I, is I okay, the, the, the whole you. purpose yeah uh, sorry to make so much noise by banging oh, on no, the table, that's all good but the whole purpose of the book it wasn't just to you know to to write a book and to show mental illness it was to fight stigma it's my way of fighting it and like you know, like the way I look at it is we all have stories to tell. We all have things to overcome, but I just so happened to go through what I went through and I happened to have been lucky enough to have been driven enough to document it. And <coughs> the only way this book would have been able to work out or because it works out is because it has a happy ending. This is a book about a period in my life and my life has yet to have an ending. It has yet to have... I don't know where my life's going to go. I don't know how I'm going to end up. I don't know how I'm going to live or die or from this point on. But the story that I tell, which is a chapter of my life, it has a happy ending. So because it has a happy ending, I can share the story that is very, at times, you know, hard to take in. It could be disturbing. Yeah. But in the end, it's very optimistic. And it, you know, like the way the way to fight stigma is to show that, you know, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. And that's where this book comes in. This book is like so much insanity, which leads to so much self-loathing and self-destructive tendencies. But I never gave up. Yeah. I never quit. I never, I never threw in the towel. I never said, well, life's got me beat. I'm just going to let it pin me. I just kept going. And I got to a point where... All of a sudden, battling this illness wasn't the most challenging thing in my life anymore. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah, bro, you're you're a fucking mental warrior, dude. And like, it's 
it's such a beautiful thing that you got in a position where you have this documented. Uh, I'm not sure if we said this on the mic or at, or at the at the bar earlier when you came in, but um, where was I going? Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's okay, it's I, okay. I had a point. <laughs> it's okay. And I like I, my brain's all like right now is like spinning. But you, yeah, you were like in such a position to have this documented, which is so rare with people like who have your condition where they're not like at the beginnings of the worst stages. They're not thinking logically to yeah. make it into a book. And I think as you were documenting it, you weren't planning it to be a book. It just kind of happened in the end. It's right? funny. You th- you would think that. Yeah. But when I started writing in 2006, immediately I thought I should make a book out of this. Okay, that's cool. So right? it was yeah. immediately. It was almost like, it was almost like if I didn't think that I was going to write a book from the get go, maybe I never would have continued documenting. Maybe I would never have made uh, journals and continued capturing the illness as it's takes place as it goes through its ups and as it goes through its downs. But because I had this idea that, Hey, you know, like this writing's pretty, pretty cool. Maybe I'll put it into a book. I never really stopped putting it into a book. But the one thing I'll say is though I've gone into so much detail about the story that started the book, the story where I wrote on the walls, the story where I escaped from a psychiatric ward naked and got arrested and got tied to a bed. This book was inspired by that story. Mm-hmm. This book is not that story. The introduction to this book is that story. The book is actually about depression. The book is about the downfall from a, a state of mania. The book is called A Man With Glasses, and I highlight the letters mania because it's all about what mania can create. The reason I chose to focus on depression in this book and not focus on the writings that I did with when I was manic, and not focus about focus on the things that I wrote when I was going through thoughts of grandeur and, and elation and stuff, is because what I wrote over the years from the from the age of twenty one to twenty eight when I would be manic, it didn't make sense. It was just random thoughts coming in from every different direction, every different angle, and there was no linear story. There was no purpose to those thoughts. It was just thoughts. But when I came down from a state of mania in 2009, was another state that I went through when I was in college, I fell into a deep depression. And I documented that into a journal. And that journal that I documented, it told a story. It started off with with a story about, you know, getting out of the hospital. And then it talked about overcoming anxiety and panic attacks. And then it got into, um, you know, basically a a story of depression, a story of self-loathing and self-deprecation. And it got into a story about drug addiction. And it got into a story about wanting to kill myself, wanting to give up, wanting to end my own life. And I chose to make that the heart of the book. Mm -hmm. The reason I chose to make that the heart of the book is because that was the most challenging thing I've ever had to deal with. The mania was something that I went through, I got hospitalized, and I got better. The depression that I went through that happened because of the state of mania was something that I had to figure out and something that I had to focus on to get better on my own. And I also found 
that when I was putting all the writing together and, and making a book out of all the madness that I had written down, the depression was something that more people could relate to. More people could relate to the negative, dark undertone of my words when I was in a state of giving up because it was about suffering. Mm-hmm. And mania, though it's fucked up, it doesn't feel like suffering. And I don't know a lot of people that can relate to mania. Yeah. Because like I said, mania feels like mushrooms and, and weed and coke and MDMA all combined. How many people can relate to that fucking feeling? I don't know a lot of people, but I know a lot of people that can relate to being sad. I know a lot of people that can relate to being angry, to being frustrated, to being overwhelmed, to being anxious, you know, and sometimes to being suicidal. You don't even need to have a mental illness to want to die. Mm-hmm. It's just a part of being alive. Yeah, sometimes we- breathing is hard. So I would rather just sleep and not breathe. So I chose to focus my book on that darkness that was induced by my mania. The mania that I went through that inspired the darkness rather than capture that in the form of journals that I scanned like I did with my depression, I took that mania and I told it as if it was a story. Mm -hmm. I explained it so people would understand it. It's a story that led to these journal entries, you know. And the art that sits with the journal entries is just beautiful creations that I've made that reflect the darkness written on each page. And they're incredible, too, like these paintings, like... uh, like do you do do you paint them or is it Photoshop type style? It's a, I'm a Photoshop artist, but yeah. I'm a con- I I have a combination of uh, of a style where I would paint, draw, take photos. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes I would collaborate with uh, with other artists. Very often I would collaborate with my fiance Amanda Langdon. She's a painter. Yeah, big show. And I would those. take all of these elements and then I would put them on the computer and then I would layer my images with Photoshop. I'm a layering artist, and I've created all this art. And really, like, how I started really focusing on my art, less on my writing but on my art, was when my mom passed away in 2013, it was a way for me to uh, to mourn and to cope with her not being around anymore. And it was almost like my form of therapy. And art was my way of, of being very therapeutic. And then when I was putting the book together and I was editing it and figuring out how I wanted to do it... I thought, hey, I made all this beautiful art. Let's throw it in there. But let's pick artwork that I've created that somehow relates to the writing that I've made. And with every page that I write, and it's all journal entries that are handwritten and scanned rather than typed to show the mind of a mentally ill person unedited, with every page in the book that's like that, I put a piece of art that somehow reflects or represents the writing on that page. Sometimes it's a direct reflection Sometimes it relates into the meaning. Sometimes it can have the opposite meaning. So you might have this dark, negative, written piece, but then the the art reflects the polar opposite, you know? Yeah. And as you get through the book and you get further and further <laughs> to the lighter side of where I'm trying to go with it, the uh, the writing and the art becomes more beautiful, more hopeful. It's really know? cool. It's so unique, too. It's like your book is like something I've never seen before. Even <laughs> even when I saw it like the year ago, like uh, just the kind of like rough cut of it, it was like, wow, like this is, I wanted this is something it to be, very I unique I wanted it to be different. I wanted it to be different. And 
I think the reason it's different, and I'm kind of ashamed to admit this, but I will, yeah. is because I'm not a big reader. Because I don't read a lot. I listen to a lot of music. I have mm-hmm. a lot of in-depth conversations. I read, but I'm not a book reader. But yeah, yet yeah. I've written a book. I think because of that, I was able to make something very different than other books. And also, um, because I'm creative, it was easy to make a book that stands out because ultimately, that yeah. the reason it stands Basically, out is... Basically, like, the book, like... It's you, you know? It's like your personality. Like, it is. All, like, it is bipolar. It is like, you think about bipolar, you think about beautiful, and you think about ugly. When you think about the art, it's beautiful. When mm-hmm. you think about the writing, it's, it's, it's scary, it's ugly, it's dark. That's what bipolar is. It's the polar opposites of, yeah. of, uh, of this illness. Yeah, and it's know? such a raw way to express it, too. And even you mentioned about like taking it to a publishing company, and they're like, oh, we need this change and change. And they're like, no, I'm going to self-publish it because no. this, is, this is the piece. This is how this it's is meant to be. This is my vision. This is my vision. This is how I want to do it. Whether it gets traditionally published or not, I don't really care. But at the moment, I wanted to self-publish it because I wanted to be in complete control of the uh, creative way that I express myself in it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I came close to getting it traditionally published, but I'm glad I went this route. I'm glad I went the self-publishing route. And uh, to be honest, when I look at it, it's like a complete package <laughs> that I didn't uh, I didn't know was going to be this beautiful when I first yeah. started writing it. <laughs> Like when I hold it in my hand, I'm like, man, like it's it's badass. It's a I'm nice ho- hardcover. I'm but... holding it right now, and I'm like, I did this. I made this work of art, and you know what? I've made 600 pieces of art. I've made this incredible website. But what I'm most proud of is this book that I hold in my hands right now, and it's my proudest piece. You know, and I'm very proud of it. So. You, sh- you should be very proud of that, man. Thank That's you. Fucking badass. Can I read you a poem that I wrote? Yeah, the definitely, man. Also, I want to mention it's kind of gangster where you're like. I don't read, but I made a book. People read my shit. You know? It's not that I don't read. It's yeah. that I'm not a book reader. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't read a lot of books, and that's why I think my book is different. But I am a reader. Mm-hmm. I love uh, you know, reading things and stuff. I am very selective with what I read, but I'm not a guy. Like I'll pick up a book, and I'll read 90 pages of it, and I'll get something from it. And then all of a sudden I'll put it down and I'll pick up another book. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. I'm, you kind of get like inspiration from it here and there yeah. and then put it down. So I'll read you a poem that uh, started off the the beginning of the book. Okay, yeah. And th- it, it ties to uh, addiction and it ties to uh, kind of like a self-realization of like, this illness is me, but like this illness isn't going to defeat yeah. me. You know? So this is like right when you open the front cover about like second, or yeah, first page. Yeah. And uh, there's a picture to go with it. Like, what, what's what's going the on? Picture with the picture says, uh, do not eliminate the light. And um, the way I look at it is, as life, we are the universe's way of understanding itself. And we are the light. You know, imagine, like, you're in the dark and you flash a flashlight. Yeah. And you're in control of it. You're the light that kind of leads the way. So when I say do not eliminate the light, I, I kind of, like, say, like, do not eliminate yourself. Okay. You know, like, you are the light. Don't shut that light off. Yeah, and that looks like it's written over, like, a black and white, like, wall, like, almost. Yeah, these Does are that all, relate these to, these like, are all the... pages I wrote when I was manic. Oh, okay, yeah. It's all different writings, and uh, I just made this little image out of it, and it's just, uh, it doesn't, 
the thing about mania is it is thought, but not always does it make sense, but still yeah. it's thought. It's almost like a visual capturing of the story prior. Yeah. Like, okay. That's... So I'll go into the, 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 the poem. <coughs> it's called The Drip is Stale. Sorry, am I close enough to the mic? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you pretty good. The drip is stale, as yesterday was its cause. The memory of the morning after forces me to pause. Now is the reason, more than ever, to never go back looking at yesterday's forever. The pain I have felt stems from not one simple touch, as all that is in me is something I have carried, something I own, something I admit, something I clutch. My words are invisible, just as thought lies. My memory is so visible, it makes my heart die. I hurt when I think of the person, the one who is to blame, for all of my strife, all of my suffering, for all of my internal resting pain. In me I shall find him and guide him to a better state. In me I shall find him. After all, he hurts just to wait. He is I, and I am him. Standing where the walls are thin, standing where the sky caves in, praying to overcome this self-inflicted sin. I challenge this person, let the killer come out, so I can smother him, subdue him, and never let him force doubt. In the mind of myself, where my torture takes place, in the mind of myself, where an illness takes shape, lies another me that I try so hard to control. Lies another me who hurts my tortured, weathered soul. I will ally this demon that rests within my mind. I will convince the spirit to come out, praying peace he shall find. In a shared state where two minds now collide, the low and the high finally meet with every waking stride. Get a grip, I tell him, and he asks where and how. I hold out my hand to him, as I am him now. The pain disappears as the hurt meets the strong. My life becomes one, and I realize it was only one in my life all along. Awesome. And like that kicks off the book. So did you write this at the beginning or later on? Like I wrote as... that poem out of everything I wrote in the book was the last thing I wrote in the book. I wrote the poem in 2015. I finished writing the book in 2014. Yeah, it's like a big foreshadowing of yeah. what happens throughout it, and uh, it's basically like a to, mission statement too. It's basically to to show that I am two people. I'm Blake, and I'm bipolar Blake, but really I'm only one person, you know. And this illness that I carry, it is something that makes me feel like I'm two people. It makes me feel like I'm good and I'm bad. But in the end, the good is what is going to carry me. And it's that one person. It's about it's about being one. Bipolar is two different things. Mm -hmm. It's about taking those two things and making it into one, you know. And ultimately, you know, realizing, like I said at the end, it was only one in my life all along. You know, so <laughs> it's badass. You're a fucking gangster. <laughs> no, man, you just fucking. I'm glad like you got to to hold like down that nightmare. Like you mentioned outside when you were having a smoke, it's almost like when you think about the manic times, it was a nightmare. And it's then, like a dream that you know 
you can remember it like it's a vivid dream. Yeah. You can remember every part of it. But when someone's like, can you tell me the dream? It's so fucked up that it's like, how do I, how do I start? Okay. Mm-hmm. How does the beginning take place? How does the middle, like, it's just so many fucking crazy things and you're trying to make sense of it and you're trying to tell it in a story that makes sense. And it's funny because you can remember every part of it. So that makes sense. But does the dream make sense? No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not real. It's not real life. Like it took place when I was awake, when I was going through real life, but the dream wasn't real life. Yeah. Most know, of the, it is probably something you can't even put into words. No. And like when I talk about it and people, you know, start asking me like, you know, how did it start when you were 17? Like what happened when you were 21? Um, what happened when you were in your mid twenties and you went to college and you went through all these breakdowns? It's like, how do I tell this so that it makes sense? Cause it, it makes sense to me kind of, yeah. Well, you lived it too, but how can I tell it in a linear way that makes sense to someone else? Because like it's fucked up. The fucked up thing is you're fucked. You're, you're irrational. You're in a, you're, you're in a fucked up state of mind. But then you're not, and everything's going smoothly, and then you're fucked up again. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, how do you make sense of the fact that you're all over the place, and then you're fine? And then you're all over the place, and then you're fine. How does that make sense? You know, like, And that's my, one of my biggest challenges is like, how do I make sense of my mind? And that's the one reason that I write so much. Yeah. The reason I write is to make sense of my mind. The reason I make art is to express my mind is to take my mind to a place of almost like escape. But the reason I write is to is to capture what's going on in my mind, have a little conversation with myself, and to make sense of it, you know? Yeah. I tend to write most of my stuff when I'm going through a dark period because mm-hmm. I want to make sense of this darkness and I want to make light out of it, you know? Yeah. It's, it's like I keep saying, it, it's a beautiful thing, man. It's like just seeing you conquer something that's so, like mentally draining like to the most extreme like it's i think like anybody who looks at this book is gonna get inspired from it like because even like i haven't had like your journey and your past and stuff like that but as you're speaking like i'm thinking of like the little things that were bugging me today and i'm like that's nothing that's fucking nothing like these I'll tell little, you this, like so, mental roadblocks i'll tell you like, this so even though i've been through all this yeah even though i've been through this crazy life where these big things have bothered me. Like mm-hmm. you're saying, the little things have bothered me. Mm-hmm. The little things that everyone goes through still bother me. Yeah. <laughs> the little things like, oh, shit, I got to pay my bills. Or, you know, like, oh, shit, like, um, you know, like, I, I don't like my job. Or, you know, like, yeah. the little things. I'm, you, still, I'm still a person. Uh, at the, end of the, at the yeah, end of the yeah. day, I may have overcome this very arduous experience. But at the end of the day, I'm still a person. Mm-hmm. And the little things still get to me the way the big things would get to you. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And the one thing you got to remember, too, is <coughs> this book is about suffering and overcoming it. But you got to remember that even though you're a person who's normal, who's never had... Well, what's normal anyway? Yeah. Right? <laughs> never, I'm sure some never, people are going to, like, tweet you and argue it. Like, yeah. he's not normal. <laughs> yeah, well, as with a mental illness, yeah, like, yeah. even though you, you've, never, you've never had it, um, you're going to go through stages of suffering you're gonna go through periods 
where it's going to feel very hard, you mm-hmm. know. And you might be happy today. You might be happy tomorrow. But there will be moments in your life where things are going to feel very difficult. Yeah, that's just the... It's just a part of it's, life. It's being human, you know? Being and it's human. It's the wave. Sadness, I wrote this thing about sadness, and I said that sadness is 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 kind of like a reminder. It's kind of like it reminds me that I'm only human. You know, it's a good yeah. thing. You know, it's a good thing to go through these periods of suffering and sadness because it, it, it wakes you up and it makes you realize at the end of the day, hey, I breathe the air just like everyone else. And sometimes it's hard to catch my breath. Mm-hmm. You know? Do you feel like people like they try too hard to just control everything and not like kind of break down like the moments that well, happening? The it's f- just like I think the they f- almost get mad at themselves for feeling sad for a reason. I think something. the problem with mental illness is a lot of people don't want to seek help because they think yeah. it's mind over matter. Mm-hmm. They think that, hey, my mind's fucked up. I can make it better. I can make it work. And they don't seek out that help that very often they might need because they think that they're in control. Mm -hmm. And that's ultimately where (laughs) mental illness is. Mental illness is about losing control of that very mind. You know, mental health is about maintaining that control. Yeah. Sometimes you need help to maintain that control. But some people think they can do it on their own and all the power to them. You know, if they think that they can manage an illness and and control it, you know, try your best to do that. But it might get to a point where you have to accept the fact that sometimes I'm not more powerful than my mind. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. my mind talks louder than I can listen to the real world. Very true. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's a problem with a lot of people is uh, they want to control everything. They want to control their own destiny. They want to yeah. control every aspect of their mind and the way that they think and their outlook. And it's because of this drive to constantly want to control things. It's they ignore the help that's out there. Mm-hmm. That, they'll make it easier. Yeah. And I, I find we're like, kind of like in a weird time too, where some people who compare themselves to other people, like with the power of so much social media everywhere, they're just seeing like the good things people post. So some people with depression could go on like Facebook and I've heard this from like a couple of my friends who have been battling depression. They go and they, they see somebody and they almost compare themselves to it, but not thinking they only post like the good things, the good things, the good things. They don't, cause like social media is beautiful in the sense that it's inspiring. Yeah. It's connecting. You look at people's lives and you're very inspired, but at the same time, uh, I think it can be a little dishonest. Yeah, because very. people will post, for the most part, people will post the good things. Yeah, but they won't focus on the things that's hurting them inside. Yeah, and it was actually before I wrote the book, <clears throat> before I made my website, I wrote a thing about my own suffering with suicidal thoughts, and I posted it on Facebook. That was yeah. my way of reaching out to people and showing people, hey, I may be this funny guy, I may be this, you know, this clown. But I have this mental illness. But this, this, this is what I really think sometimes. Yeah. And someone contacted me and told me, Yo, you should take that down, man. That's dangerous. So I did. Yeah. But then I got the nerve to put it back up. And what I found recently, I'm not saying I'm responsible for this, mm-hmm. but a lot of people I'm connected to on Facebook are becoming a lot more brave yeah. and becoming a lot more honest with their own things. 
there's this one girl I know, and she posted this picture about it was a it was a selfie, mm-hmm. and she talked about how her body image and her self image is very negative. Yeah, and she always she'll she'll take a million pictures and she doesn't like what she sees, and she wrote about that as she posted this picture, and she mm-hmm. said the only reason I post stuff like this is because I want your approval. Oh wow. I want yeah. you to I want you to like it so that I like myself. And that's but probably she, so true within hundreds of people, but those hundreds of people will not post what she did. Like, yeah, and she type. posted that. Yeah. And I immediately said how beautiful she was on the inside and out. I told her how inspired I was by her honesty. Yeah. And I think the, the more people we're getting to a point where it's accepted to share our stories, to share our demons, to share our desires and to share our dreams that it's easier to be open and honest about what we go through. And that's the best way for one to accept that you might have an illness like mm-hmm. I have. It's also a good way to fight the things that don't accept it. Yeah. And those are the things that create stigma. The yeah. people and the, the things that don't accept mental illness, that is what stigma is. And the only way to fight it is by being honest. Yeah, so and when that's, you st- that's why like your book almost like people can see and be like oh this is so radical but like all it is is honesty like that's it that's it it's just honesty it's just my mind poured out on the paper and it is just uh it is just the truth it's just what i went through during those years that i wrote it i'm not lying about anything i write about suicide i write about cocaine abuse i write about ecstasy i write about my anger my frustration i even write there's a couple pages where i think that i'm psychotic and I think I might hurt someone that I don't want to hurt. Yeah. I write about all that because I want to reveal mental illness as it is. And because I'm brave enough to do that, maybe someone else will be brave enough to share their story. And maybe someone else will be brave enough to start their website or to go on their own podcast or mm-hmm. do their own thing. And together we can all have a conversation to each other to inspire each other that have mental illness, yeah. but to also educate the people that don't so that the people that don't have it don't fucking judge. Yeah, definitely. And become like a collective conscious on like whatever subject you're trying to break. I find like in the world, like in just putting out media, the most honest stuff like shakes stuff up and like almost like some people like they get shocked by it, like scary, like, one thing that's going through my mind right now, you're like a old school hip hop fan too. Like, yeah, Biggie in there, like NWA. It's yeah. like, you think of it and like, all they're doing is just being honest about like the police situation and shit like that too. And like, well, that's, that's no different from my your website, book of my being website, like honest. Like, you know, my website is Blake reflected.com. Yeah. The reason I said it's Blake reflected is because it is my reflection. It is what I've created inside of me and spewed out. And so it's basically me reflected. If you watch the NWA movie, there's a scene where they're interviewing the NWA. And they're talking to Ice Cube and they're talking to Easy e and they're talking to Dr. Dre. And they're saying, you know, you came up with all these uh, anti-police songs and stuff. And Ice Cube says, you know, art is a reflection of life. Mm-hmm. And this is a reflection of our reality. And that's exactly why I made my website, BlakeReflects.com. Not because of that movie, but, but because art is a reflection of my life. Yeah, for that same and philosophy. Right? Yeah, exact same philosophy. And that's the thing. It's like every true artist tells a story. Every true artist 
you know, takes what they see and tells a story with it or what they feel and tells a story with it. You know, I feel mm-hmm. like Tupac, he saw what he saw and he made a story about it. Yeah. I feel like Biggie felt what he felt and he made a story with it. And that is what, you know, true art is. It's a story of real life and it's a reflection of real yeah. life, whether it's what you observe and what you see and what you feel or it's what you go through and what you feel and then what you reflect from that feeling. Yeah, and the yeah. people who connect to, like, stuff like that, like you mentioned, like, big names, Biggie Tupac, and I, th- I believe people connected with it because it was authentic and real, which is the feeling I get from your book, and I feel like if more people, like know about you and like get to find your book go to it's blake reflection or reflected blake reflected.com right blake blake reflected.com okay <laughs> check it out and uh can they buy your book from there yeah or? you okay. can order my book from my website and there's uh there's links all over that you can order it and hopefully one day soon it'll be on bookshelves but for now you can just order it and uh yeah man and the hard cover it's where it's at you can order the ebook no, this hardcover is beautiful. Yeah, the like, hardcover is where it's at. That's where you got to get. Fuck the e-book. You know what? Because we, we need these. Like, who knows what's going to happen to the internet? Like, just yeah. like, everything the hard, might blow the, up the hard cover, the, like, the e-book is, is, you know, if you want the information, but the hardcover is the work of art. Yeah. It's uh, the, People consider it a coffee table book because it's so visual. If you want a nice coffee table book, you got the hardcover. Yeah. BlakeReflected.com, you can get it. You know, yeah. so. it's it's meant to be read in the hardcover. Actually, like uh it's cool, like kind of un- unrelated to mental illness though, like with the with uh vinyl coming back too. I noticed like a lot of like these like artsy bands too. Yeah. They like almost the same thing. They want you to buy the vinyl because it goes back to like the old days where you open it and there's like all these pictures and you can feel it. Yeah. And, like, it's, like, like when I look at this book, like when I when I when I go through it and I say, "Wow, look at all the art that I yeah. made." So it's like even you you're, flipping through it right now, like this is just audio. <laughs> like my my brain is getting so stimulated. Like it's, like, it's so like cool. These pictures are, yeah, are <laughs> bananas, dude. It's cool, man. <laughs> oh man. No, That's but cool. it's it's good. And you know what? It's uh, if I didn't write the book, it's possible I may not be here because mm-hmm. I thought oh, I don't want to live. I want to die. But because I had the agenda that I want to document it. It kind of kept me alive. So this book, without a doubt, helped me. And because it helped me, it's possible it could help you. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So that's 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 how I feel about the book. It may not speak to everyone. It may be a subject matter that not everyone can gravitate towards. But for me, it gave me purpose. And you know, maybe someone who reads it or maybe the people that read it that can relate to it, it can help them find their purpose Mm -hmm. and ultimately, you know, not feel alone. I don't want people to feel alone. You know, when they, when they read this, I want them to know that we're all human. We're all going through shit, but we're all, we're all, you know, walking a straight line to something beautiful, you know? And that's the way I look at life. You're walking on the straight line. Don't fall off the straight line. Keep walking on it. And, and eventually you're going to, you're going to end up somewhere amazing, you know, and that's where this book is taking me. And that's where this is only going to continue to take me. That's fucking incredible, man. Dude, (laughs) like, I think 
we should end it off on that but dude okay. like seriously thank you so much for taking like the time to sit here this might be one of my longest episodes but <laughs> but thank you for being like so brave and open and like like i said like i wanted you to be comfy in here and like i'm not like trying to exploit your story or whatever no, and i really absolutely. hope that came about and you I, I hope people check out this book. Cause the like, whole purpose is to share. And yeah. I'm just sharing a part of me. Mm-hmm. And what you're doing by letting me speak about this is you're helping what I'm doing get shared to others. And that's ultimately what I want to do. I want to share. You, know? yeah. and you may it, not buy my book, but at the end of the day, you've heard my story. And it's it sparked something in you that maybe will want to help you share your story and share your experiences and stuff you know definitely so. and if you don't mind can i take a couple screenshots of your book put it on like so people Absolutely. can see it on the page Absolutely. and like and yeah definitely uh like where can people find you twitter facebook oh. uh so on facebook it's facebook.com slash blake reflected on twitter it's at blake reflected uh on instagram it's at blake reflected and my amazing website, which I've spent good, the good course of four years creating and constantly changing, it's uh, www.blakereflected.com. And on there, you can see my art. Uh, you can read my words. Uh, you might even get a preview to another book that I'm also slowly creating. And you can see, um, you know, parts of this book, A Man With Glasses, that ultimately I want to get out to as many people as possible because I want to share my story and I want to share what I've been through and I want people to know that, you know, they're not alone on this and there's no reason to feel shame and there's no reason to carry any form of stigma when it comes to mental illness because at the end of the day, we're all people and we're all good. Yo, man, it's a lot of brothers out there flaking and perpetrating but scared to kick reality. Yo, Dre, you've been doing all this dope producing. You had a chance to show them what time it is. So what you want me to do? Girth Radio. My behavior is hereditary, but my technique is very necessary. Blame it on Ice Cube because he said it get funky. When you got a subject and a predicate, add it on a dope beat and it'll make you think. Some suckers just tickle me, pink to my stomach because they don't flow like this one. You know what? I won't hesitate to this one or two before I'm through, so don't try to sing this. Some drop science, well, I'm dropping English, even if yella makes it a cappella. I still express you, I don't smoke weed or sex. Cause it's known to give a brother brain damage And brain damage on the mic don't manage nothing But making a sucker and you equal Don't be another sequel my 
It's crazy to see people be what society wants them to be But not me, ruthless is the way to go They know others say rhymes which fail to be original Or they kill where the hip-hop starts Forget about the ghetto, the rap for the pop charts Though some musicians cuss at home They're scared to use profanity when up on the microphone Yeah, they want reality, but you hear none They'd rather exaggerate a little fiction Some say no to drugs and take a stand But after the show, they go looking for the dope man Or they ban my group from the radio Here in WA and say hell no But you know it ain't all about wealth As long as you make a note to Cause if a strike, it ain't for your good health But I won't strike if you just Spread 